Amen. Thank you, guys. I want to start with a parable that maybe you've heard. There once was a man who was in a field, and he found a hidden treasure. And then in his joy, he sold everything he had, and he bought that field. Is that familiar to anybody? That is what we're going to talk about today, essentially. And I think uh, if you guys know the name Jim Elliott, he summed it up well, and you probably know this quote. Uh, He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And perhaps what made that quote stick is that Jim Elliott did indeed give his life on the mission field, right? He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So we've been walking through, now I'm going to use a clicker tonight, which I don't usually do, so I'm getting fancier and fancier, aren't I? Yeah, last week it was the the tablet, now it's a clicker, there's not even anything in front of me, amazing. Okay, we're talking about repentance and faith. So we've been working through the three circles, which is a way to talk about the gospel on the one hand, and we've also been using it not only to talk about the gospel, but to remind ourselves of what the gospel is. So we've been walking through it as a way to preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis, and also to prepare ourselves to share the gospel when that opportunity arises. So just to walk through again, I think review, review, review is the best way that we can have the gospel and and the full scope of it on our lips, because it's something that's somewhat difficult to summarize. So we have God's design is where we start. Anyone remember the reference that the, the verse that we used to kind of talk about this and summarize it. Yes, Genesis 1.31, which says? Very good. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Were you last week too? Did you? Yeah. So somebody other than Alexander needs to memorize <laughs> these verses. No. Uh, yeah, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And we just, and we just talked about, okay, God's design. God designed everything. God created everything, which means he owns it, and he designed it, which means he gets to determine what's good for it. And then we walked through, oh right, uh, brokenness. And what is brokenness and what is sin? Okay, so sin is departing from God's design, and brokenness is the result. And with that, not only do we have a horizontal problem of relational issues and sinning against one another, and that causes our brokenness, But we also have a vertical problem where we've now broken our relationship with God. And so we've dishonored God, and God, in his holiness and in his justice, must punish sin. We talked about that last week also. And so what's the answer to this is it's the gospel. And so we went to uh, Romans 3, and we talked about Romans 3.23 with sin and brokenness, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we kind of widened the scope with the gospel, because in the context, Paul's actually giving us the gospel. And, and we reviewed, essentially, that, that the gospel is when Jesus pays the price for our sin on the cross, and we walk away free. And how does that work? Well, it's because God's justice has been satisfied in the person of Jesus. So it's a free gift that costs God, in a sense, everything. So this is the gospel, and now we're at this point of the three circles, if we're walking through the gospel, where we need to understand this step, repent and believe. And, and the importance of this is, It's one thing to simply tell someone what the gospel is, and and they might even understand the facts of the gospel. They might even 
say, you know what, I think that that actually happened. Um, but that is not the same as repentance and faith. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight and, and get into it. All right, you all ready? Repentance and faith. I want you to, to turn to Jonah. Now, we're actually not going to get into it for, for a minute here, but it just took me like a solid, I don't know, minute or two to find Jonah. So I wanted to give you guys a head start. Uh, Jonah, if you actually go to Matthew, you can start going backwards from Matthew into the Old Testament, and that's probably the easiest way to find it. Um, it's in those minor prophets, meaning those, those short prophetic books. They were still important prophets. They're just shorter, so you call them minor prophets. Okay, so Jonah is where we're going to turn um, first. Before we get there, I just want to talk about repentance and faith in a general sense, okay? We want to understand this as two sides of one coin, okay? Repentance and faith. So when, we, when you think about repentance and faith, it's really not two actions, it's really one action viewed from two angles. And, and, and that's because if you were to remove one of them, you ruin the other one. You cannot have true faith without repentance, and you cannot have true repentance without faith. If you lose either one, it's like the wings on a plane, and if you lose one, the, the plane crashes. It doesn't work. And in fact, if you lose one, then the other one stops making any sense. So we're going to talk about both sides of it, but in a sense, they are one moment, actually, really, when, you, when, you're, when you're converted to Christianity. It's one thing. And in the ongoing life of Christianity, we're also, it's, it's, it's essentially one thing with two aspects of it. So, and we, and we see this in a couple places. I'm just going to rattle these off. So Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of... Now he's going to go into what is kind of the basics of the gospel. Now, in the context, he's saying, let's not go over this again, but okay, I'm going to go over it again just to make sure we're all on the same page. And what does he start with? He says, a foundation of repentance from dead works, okay, there's repentance, and of faith toward God. So you can kind of see the two sides there, right? Repentance and faith. However, these are so connected to each other that often in scripture, you don't even see them mentioned, you see one or the other mentioned with the implication that both are implied. Okay, so for example, uh, when the Philippian jailer comes to faith, he says, what, do I, what should I do to be saved? It is in the book of Acts, um, chapter 16. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your family, and you will be saved. No mention of repentance. Now, does that mean that the jailer did not need to repent? Probably not. It actually means that they saw these two things as one and the same. Now, the same writer, Luke, writing the same book, Acts, earlier in the book, mentions Peter. In his first sermon at Pentecost, and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, we're not going to look at that and say, Oh, wait, they don't have to believe in Jesus? They just have to repent and be baptized. Well, you can see one or the other kind of implies the both. Okay, so we're going to talk about two sides of the coin, two wings of a plane. Uh, and with that, let's jump into it. Go to, go to Jonah 3. Is everyone there in Jonah? Jonah. Now, this is very convenient. I was thinking about talking about Jonah, and then if you're in church this morning, he was talking about Jonah. Just fantastic. So we already are kind of in the, the headspace of talking about Jonah and the Ninevites repenting. And so we're going to look at this repentance to get an idea of what is meant by repentance. Uh, what did the Ninevites do as a picture of what is repentance, okay? And I'm going to argue that repentance and faith is essentially turning and trusting, okay? So if you want to understand repentance in one word, it's turning. And that is what the Hebrew means. 
there's, a, there's one word that's primarily used, and it means to turn around, essentially. And it's used sometimes not even referring to repentance, but whenever repentance is used or, or referred to, it's turning. So in this passage, we won't see the word repentance, but we'll see turning, turning, turning. So uh, getting more specific, repentance, if we kind of make it a little bit bigger, turning is changing one's mind, heart, and direction. So, I'm going to read from Jonah 3 here, and we're going to get into it. I'm going to go just straightforward through it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He's just been spit out by the whale, okay? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. This is that short message that Pastor David was talking about, right? All he says, apparently, is yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. At least that's all we're given. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. All right, here we have repentance, and we're going to keep on moving here. Because the king actually describes it in greater detail. So the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, this is the quote, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we see that word turn become very important at the end there. In fact, you see a play on words. The Ninevites turn, and then God turns. So God promises disaster, the Ninevites turn, and then God essentially changes his mind. And he says, I see your repentance, I see you turning, I'm going to turn from what I was going to do to you and, and give you uh, grace. Turning from his anger. So on the one hand, I want to break it up into, into three kind of categories of repentance, just to kind of help us think about the different aspects of it. The first one would be the mind. We, we need to, on the very surface of it, acknowledge sin for what it is. And the Ninevites did this without, I mean, there's like no question. The, the king does not have to argue with the Ninevites and say, look, you guys were really doing evil stuff. Look what you're doing. Like, uh, I'm going to create a list and, and show you that it doesn't align with God's law. He doesn't have to make any arguments. He just says, turn from your evil way. It's assumed that they understand that what they are doing is evil. And uh, as Pastor David was talking about, their evil was known throughout the world uh, and their cruelty. <laughs> when, we were, when he was talking about that this morning, my wife just like walked in because she had been uh, feeding Eden and, and putting her in the nursery. So she walked in right as Stephen Davey was saying like, and then they tore their limbs off. <laughs> and it was like, and then she literally sat down and was like, what are we talking about? Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, it's just Nineveh. Yeah, it's just the Assyrians. So yeah, they were incredibly cruel, uh, the Assyrians. And, and so they knew that they were, they were wicked. Now, in today's age, this might not be a given. Um, 
that people might argue, no, I'm not wicked, I'm not evil, what I'm doing is not wrong. And I believe that that might be an intellectual thing, uh, but deep down, God's word says that they're aware of God and they're aware of their guilt before God because God's law is written on the heart. But on the, on the surface of it, we at least need to, to assent and say, okay, yeah, we need to acknowledge sin. Uh, but then there's also sorrow for sin. Now, I wrestled with this a little bit because a lot of the biblical data doesn't emphasize sorrow. And so I don't think we should necessarily emphasize the emotional aspect of it. But if you look here, uh, there is clearly sorrow. When, when someone in the Bible puts on sackcloth and ashes, it actually happens often. And there's a couple of different contexts. One is like this, repenting for sin. The other one is actually just mourning, right? Someone dies, like a, a wife dies, and someone puts on sackcloth and ash to mourn. And so it is a, a gesture of humility on the one hand, because it's humiliating to put on this like goatskin canvas, basically nothing, and then sit in ashes and, and just be dirty. So it's humility, but it's also sorrow. You're, you're, you're visibly, outwardly expressing anguish and inner sorrow. It's often, it comes to my mind that it's associated with like beating your breast. I, I mean, I wonder if we still did that. I feel like that might make us like express our sorrow better, you know, if we were to actually beat our breasts. Anybody with me on that? No? Okay. That's okay. Um, sometimes you don't know, I feel like in our culture, okay, this is a total sidetrack. In our culture, it's like not okay to cry anymore, but in their culture, it was like if someone died, and maybe this isn't all good, but it was almost expected that you would like outwardly show it, right? And you'd beat your breast and you'd cry and it would be like days on end. And this can't always be like real because I feel like there's examples of kings dying and then all the people have to like mourn for a month and you're like, how real? I don't know if that's like sincere. Anyway, okay, that's again a sidetrack. But all right, the point is, here's the point. Sorrow is an aspect of repentance. And you can see that here, right? Uh, they are putting on sackcloth, sitting in ashes, and it's an expression of their humility before God, and also their sorrow for sin. They're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what I've done, and it actually causes me great grief to realize what I've done to God. If we do not have that sorrow for sin, it might say something about how much we actually understand it. Because the sorrow is not just, oh man, that really stunk for me. When I did that thing, it really ruined my life. It's actually wow, my sin has not only affected so many other people, and that can cause me great sorrow when I see that, but also my sin has been a personal affront to God himself. So it involves sorrow for sin. And lastly, the will. Now this is the most important aspect of it, forsaking sin. So we see with them, they, they start to take action immediately. Part of that is the sackcloth and ashes. But then they also, uh, they proclaim a fast immediately. And then the outcome of that, or perhaps the extending of that, is that they turn from their evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Now on the one hand, they don't know very much about God. So we have to give them some, some grace in what they're doing. But what God sees, when you look at verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
So what's the one thing that's mentioned that God sees that they did? Does it say God saw their sorrow or God saw their fasting? No, what does God see? They're turning from their evil way, right? So we have to ask ourselves, what does that, what does that mean that they turn from their evil way? Anybody? <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. <laughs> they repented. Very good. Um, here's what I think it means. They committed to stopping it, right? That's what I, I mean, forsaking is kind of an old, an old word, right? But it basically means to drop it, to leave it, to walk away from it, to despise it, to decide, I want nothing to do with that anymore, right? They are turning away from it. Essentially, it's a commitment to stop. So it's not just, you know, sometimes we talk about repenting as like, okay, we can stop at the emotional side of it and say, man, I'm so grieved by my sin. I'm repenting. That's not the main point of repenting. The main point of repenting is I'm committing to turning away from this to something else. I'm going to drop this and walk in a different direction. It's mostly the, the turning and not so much an emphasis on the, the emotional aspect of it. The emotional aspect of it often leads to it. I'll talk about that in a second. But it's not primarily the emotional aspect. It's actually the, the leaving it, the turning, the forsaking, the stopping. Okay? I want to show you this uh, with... Isaiah. Here's another, uh, now there's, there's multiple texts we could go to to kind of just illustrate this, but here's Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. There's, there's that word forsake, to leave it behind. And then let him return. That's the same word for turn. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So the primary idea here is, is forsake, to leave it behind, to stop it. I think I, I missed a quote. Or maybe I'm going to do it later. Okay, we're good, we're good, I'm going to do it later. Part of the reason this matters so much is... What repentance means, it means leaving something behind. And we need to, to understand this as a part of faith because sometimes we preach Christ as if he's an add-on to our lives. We can say simply, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Now, that's okay. Paul said that. But we have to understand and we have to make sure that those that we're talking to understand that you cannot simply add Jesus on to your life. You actually have to drop something in order to be able to accept Jesus. The way that he put it was, come to me, you who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'll take your yoke on me, but then we have something to do too. We, we take on his yoke, right? So if we, if we don't come to him, we don't give him our burden of sin, then we can't take on his yoke. Sometimes people want to just come and just add, add Jesus to their lives, and that's, you can't do that. Um, and, and Jesus himself makes this really, really clear. So here's just a couple of examples. When, when Jesus is preaching, he's always calling people to leave their sin behind. It's never just believe in me. It's if you want to believe in me, you understand that you have to do this. So there's the rich ruler who says, what do I have to do? I, I've obeyed the law my whole life. And Jesus says, oh, you have to give up your love of your possessions and your wealth. 
and he goes away sorrowful because he can't let go of that. He can't forsake that love. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, right? So you guys remember Zacchaeus? He's the one who grows up in a tree. Zacchaeus also has to, and he's actually an incredible example of kind of like the opposite of this rich young ruler. He actually gives up something, right? He gives away like all of his money. He, he invites Jesus in. He hosts him. He forsakes his evil ways. He says, I'm going to restore everything fourfold, right? Um, Jesus himself, when he's talking to the man at the pool, uh, he says, see your wealth. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more, right? So that's a huge aspect of faith. You have to leave, leave it behind. So if I could sum it up in this, just this statement, the credibility of your repentance is not measured in the number of tears shed, but in your commitment to forsaking sin. So it's not, how do I drum up enough emotion about my sin? Rather, it is, how do I actually commit to forsaking my sin and leaving it behind? How committed are you to forsaking sin? 2 Corinthians 7.10, this is what I was thinking about getting to. So this is often used to connect grief and repentance, but note this. So it says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. See that progression? So godly grief can, I think God uses grief to convict us of sin in the first place, but that is not repentance itself. It's an aspect of it, but really it leads to repentance, which is turning. Turn away. Turn away. Turn away from sin. So here's the question to you. To what, and I just said this, but to what degree are you committed to forsaking sin in your life? Um, there's a couple just huge aspects of this, but I remember with... Um, Pornography is a, is a huge one that takes really an incredible commitment if you are addicted to pornography. It's really astounding because it's an addiction that you could, I think, easily liken to a drug addiction, a very strong one. So the question is, how, how seriously are you going to take that sin? If, and now, I'm not saying you're not saved, by the way, if you're struggling with that, but repentance is an ongoing thing in our lives as Christians. So we repent and believe in Christ to be saved, and then we continue repenting throughout our lives. And again, the depth of that repentance is shown in our obedience. So again, a, a mentor of mine was just talking about pornography and saying, you know, it's a question of, you know, what are you willing to give up? Are you willing to, to give up your smartphone? Are you willing to, to give up a computer? I mean, like, how serious are you about your sin? And that's just a very easy example. There's so many other examples, whether that's what you struggle with or not, right? But what, what's, what is the sin that you kind of say, ah, I'm not going to touch that. It's pretty difficult to get rid of. I've tried before. Again, it's not how sorry are you that you're sinning. Uh, it's to what lengths are you willing to go? That's the depth of your repentance. And for unbelievers, again, the... the for those who have not placed their, their faith in Christ, you have to understand that you can't just add faith in Christ onto your life. You have to let something go to accept Christ, and that is your sin. You have to walk away from it. So that, I think, is a summary of what repentance is. And then, on the other hand, what's faith? So I said repentance and faith, 
turning and trusting. Okay, so faith, trust. So I have this little definition. Faith is believing that what God has said is true. And therefore, depending on Jesus personally. We need both aspects of this. First of all, we need to have faith, trust that what God says is true. That's really the foundation of our faith. But that's not all that faith is. We have to also go on and depend on Jesus personally. So again, I'm going to divide this up into, into three elements. And this is something that theologians have done really since like the, the Reformation. And it is helpful. Okay, So three elements. Okay, We have an intellectual, volitional, personal. Okay, so on the intellectual side, this is, this is saying, I have a knowledge of the gospel. Okay, so like what we did last week in terms of understanding what Jesus did on the cross and offers to you. It involves both who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We need to understand this, and we need to get that right in order to have true biblical faith. Faith is not simply putting all your eggs in one basket, no matter what basket that is, and then living your life consistent with that. There are plenty of people doing that, very sincerely following a faith that is false. It matters that we believe the right thing, that we understand what the Bible says about who Jesus is so that we know and are following, in a sense, the right Jesus. Because there's a lot of fake gospels out there. I, I'm convicted sometimes by the faithfulness and the faith of Mormons who go around door to door and actually live out their faith. They, they live it out better than Christians oftentimes. But they have the wrong Jesus. They deny the, the deity of Christ and, and the Trinity, among other things. And, and that's a huge problem. So it does actually matter what we believe. Scripture talks about this uh, in John 20. This is actually the thesis statement of the book of John. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But I wrote this book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So there's that that statement. We need to believe the right thing about Jesus. We need to understand what he did, who he is. And for that reason, we, we should seek to understand our Bibles better. But that's not all that there is to it. It's not just understanding what. Um, so the second element, volitional, is belief that these facts are actually true. Right? So we assent and we say, you know what? Not only do I understand the gospel, but I believe that what you're saying is true. Okay? This is also necessary for, for true saving faith. So here's an, here's an example, okay? I could say, I could assent I, or, or say, I understand that science proves that exercise is good for me, right? Um, that's an, well, actually, I, I said that wrong. The first level would simply be saying, scientists prove that for somebody, for, some, for many people, exercise is really good, right? Regular exercise, with exercise. The second aspect would be saying, okay, not only that, but I believe that if I were to exercise, I would be healthier and it would be good for me, Okay? But that alone is not enough. Knowledge and approval of the facts is not enough. And this is really, really important. I think there's a lot of people walking around churches, considering themselves Christians, who have, only, who have stopped at this step. And what James says to that person is, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and they shudder. So there's, there's, a, there's more to it than just that. There's more to it than simply assenting to facts. 
there's this personal element, right? And this is where it gets perhaps a little more difficult to define it, but it is a, a personal knowledge, assent, and trust. It's saying, I want to depend on Jesus to save me personally. I'm going to put my weight down on that truth. Uh, you can't, and this is where repentance becomes so essential to faith, because you can't straddle two boats. I picture like two boats like passing each other. You can't like kind of just try and be on both boats, right? That you're either going to be torn apart or drop in the water. So you can't do that. You can't serve two masters. That's how Jesus said it. You can't serve both God and money. Um, you can't build your house on both the sand and on the rock. So there has to be a choice made, and that's why repentance is so vital. You have to give one thing up to fully put your weight down somewhere else. So Scripture not only talks about believing that Christ, right, or believing Christ, it talks about believing in Christ, right? We have to believe in Jesus, and that's what this personal faith is. We have to put our weight down somewhere, and it's on him. There's a point, rock climbing, when you have to trust the rope. How many of you guys have been rock climbing? There's like several of you that are like really into it right now. Excellent. Okay, cool. Has, have any of you guys like been outside and had to rappel down a wall? That's a fun. Okay, we need to get outside. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of fun. Well, I was a guide for a little while in Colorado. It was a lot of fun. And I was, I was terrified every time, basically, I was up there. But, of course, I'm the one that's supposed to be calming people down and being like, you can trust the ropes, just go. <laughs> uh, no, but I, uh, I put on a good face and was like, yeah, this is, we totally got this, all right? But there's a sense in which, you know, they haven't, they haven't tested the ropes. They're trusting me to say, yes, this rope can hold your weight. And, uh, and if we do everything correctly, we, we trust the equipment, you're going to be okay. And I didn't kill anyone, so that's, that's really good, right? But there's, a, there's this terrifying moment. Let's say this is the, the cliff edge where you're, you're, you're strapped in, you basically have this rope going over, and you just have a little, a little thing that basically slows you down as you, as you go over. Uh, so the rope is kind of going through a little uh, rappel device. And so you're going down, you're going down, and there's a point where you just hit the edge, and you basically just have to start, like, leaning out, okay? And you, you can look down, and it's, like, terrifying. Uh, and oftentimes, right at that moment, your feet start to lose their grip a little bit, and you start to kind of slip a little bit, and you'll kind of smack into the wall. So it's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> we should all go and do it, okay? But there is just this point where you have to actually say, okay, I, I trust the rope. Or, just to give one more analogy, a parachute analogy. Has anyone been skydiving? All right, I had a crazy aunt who, uh, who basically forced me to do it, okay? But I... <laughs> So that there's a point with that where you, you acknowledge, okay, like, all of you could say, yeah, 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 like, parachutes generally work, right? And that's another thing to actually get strapped on. Now, in this case, I was, like, strapped on tandem to a person, and it was a guy like this short, so it's kind of awkward. But you get strapped onto them, right? And you have the parachute on your back, and there's a point where you say, okay, I, I do believe that this parachute is going to, going to save us, right, if we jump out of a plane. And then there's that third element of actually jumping out of the plane. And that's what we're talking about with trust. There's a point when, in faith, you can't just give intellectual assent to it. You actually have to, well, if you truly put your personal faith in it, you are going to act on it. And so I want to I actually turn to one, one other place in Scripture, Matthew 8, uh, if you want to go there. And this is just an astounding example of, of this kind of faith that we're talking about. So this is the faith of the centurion. All right? 
So it's astounding on the one hand because it's a Gentile. It's not even uh, a Jew. And Jesus it just has this encounter. So we're just going to read it. Um, this is Matthew 8, verse 5. So we're going to start. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So he has a problem. His servant is at home, paralyzed and suffering, probably on the edge of death. I think that another account might say that. And he said to him, that is Jesus, I'll come and heal him. Fantastic. But the centurion replied, he stops him, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those following him, Truly I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I'm going to pause there. Okay. I want to point out the risk that the centurion went through simply to tell Jesus that he was not worthy to have him under his roof. He could have simply just allowed Jesus to come. But he not only understood Jesus, that Jesus could heal this, this person, but he also understood his lordship so that he understood, I'm actually not even worthy to have you come under my roof. So I'm going to stop you right there and tell you, I understand who you are. Anything you say goes. I understand authority. So say the word. You don't even need to come to my house. And Jesus says, okay. And the centurion goes home and finds that servant well. I want you to imagine him going home and finding the servant still sick. Just to get an idea of what he has put on the line. What if he goes home and the servant is still sick? Well, then he's going to have to explain to the servant why he told Jesus not to bother right? He's going to have to explain, well, uh, I just thought he, he could do it from there. I guess he needs to be in the room. So sorry, you're going to die now. And then after the servant dies, the entire household is going to hold him accountable for making this foolish decision to, to stop the rabbi from coming when he was coming, right? So there's, he's risking his reputation. And we see this again over and over in the Gospels. The disciples say, look, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus actually tells them, there's going to be great reward for that. But that's, that's what faith means. That's what faith does. Faith eventually must take some kind of a leap. That's why we talk about a leap of faith. It's not because it's blind or there's not a rope or there's no reason to trust. It just means that eventually faith means action. Faith means actually putting your weight down or trusting the rope or trusting the parachute. So, it's more than just intellectual assent. Now, I want to just make the point quickly. Uh, again, this, this could be misconstrued to mean that if you have not repented of everything in your life and, and are living this incredible, full of victory kind of life that you never got saved. Well, what's encouraging is that Jesus says just a mustard seed of faith is, is all you need. And it, it seems like, again, another example is when uh, the man says, please increase 
my faith, increase our faith. And so we can look at that and we can say, okay, on the one hand, we need just a little bit to be saved. Praise the Lord for his grace. And yet, we're also called upon to grow in our Christian life and grow that faith and become greater in our faith so that Jesus can say something like, I've never seen faith like this in Israel. He's not saying, I haven't seen any faith. He's saying, wow, like this. And so, as Christians, let's strive to be that kind of person who, who actually grows in their faith. So what does that look like? I was really kind of struggling with this, like, Lord, what does it actually look like to grow in our faith? I think if repentance is, is turning from sin and faith is trusting, then in our lives what repentance and faith looks like on a great grand scale. What does it look like? It looks like incredible obedience. Dedicated obedience. Sacrificial obedience. Right? So, again, I ask the question, where are the areas in your life that are, you're slow to obey, that you're holding on to? Those are the areas that are holding you back from this great faith you're, you hear about. It's not uh, maybe as glamorous as we'd like it to be. And I, I think I, I like the quote by Eugene Peterson that says, you know, sanctification, this, this growing in, in spiritual stature, is a long obedience in the same direction. That's essentially what it is. It's a long obedience in the same direction. So if we've turned toward the Lord, then, then we're simply obeying in that direction deeper and deeper and deeper. One example, I, was, I went through scripture at one point, and I thought of that phrase that Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. And there's a couple of places where he says that. And it's primarily when the disciples in particular are showing this fear and anxiety about a situation. So Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. There's crazy wind and waves. They all think they're going to die. Okay, They're experiencing this incredible fear. Or another time when Peter actually steps out on the water. You remember, Jesus invites him. Peter says, yeah, I, I want to come out. And then he begins to sink when he sees the waves. Fear. It was just the first example that came to mind to say one area where we often lack faith, or at least we exhibit it in our lives, is when we have fear and anxiety. I've experienced that recently. We were in the process right now of putting and offering on a house, and things keep on looking like they're about to fall through, which would be bad news for us, because we really like it. And it's just so easy to wake up in the morning with this, like, this fear and this anxiety. And so I have to constantly recognize that that fear and anxiety is actually rooted in sin. It's rooted in a, in a disbelief in, in God's promises, that actually, no matter what happens with this house, his plan is going to be best for me. And I just know, whether it's statistically or, or personally talking to people, that fear and anxiety is rampant. It's a, uh, it's a health crisis, I think it's been described, right? And, it, and people need an answer to that. People, people want relief from that. And I don't think that in most cases the, the answer is medication, although maybe in, in a few cases. Primarily, it's, we need to recognize this is a spiritual problem. And the solution to this spiritual problem, the medication, if you will, is putting our trust where it needs to be. Because ultimately a lack of faith is going to lead to incredible fear and anxiety.
But with that, sometimes we can talk about repentance and, again, have this really negative connotation. Oh, it's just sorrow and, and pain and, and, you know, all these things. Well, repentance is turning. Faith is trusting. And so if we think of conversion, repentance and faith, together as one motion, really what it is, is it, if, if this is sin over here and this is Jesus over here, it's this, okay? Which is an incredibly beautiful, wonderful, joyful thing to do, whether it's the first time and you're believing in Jesus for the first time, or as a believer, you're forsaking sin and you're turning to him, we need to remember that this is actually a really good thing, and it brings the freedom and the joy that God created us for. A really good illustration of this was uh, one writer noted, this is a backpacking example. I'm using a lot of outdoor examples today, but I love the outdoors, so... Anyone been backpacking? All right, has anyone ever been really smelly and dirty before? There's some ladies not admitting to ever being smelly or dirty. I respect that. All right. Um, so I've been, <laughs> all the guys in the room are like, yeah, like today. <laughs> uh, so after backpacking, there's a point, usually you're, you're out there, and together you're getting like, let's be honest, like really dirty and smelly. Because you're going multiple days, at best maybe you're like, washing in a stream or something like that, okay? And, and so you're wearing the same clothes because you don't want to, you know, change too much because it would be way too much to carry. So let's say you're gone for like four days, okay? And you're with other, other dirty people, so you don't really like care that much, okay? But there's a point where you, like for us, again, I was, I was a guide out in Colorado, so we would get back on the bus, and even the bus driver, the second you see the bus driver, you suddenly, you start to realize like, I'm really, I'm really dirty. Like, I don't want anyone to see me. Okay. So then you, you take the bus and you go back to the, the campground uh, where there's a, it's basically a base and there's a lot of just normal people in normal clothes. And you step out and suddenly you just start to feel like that character in, uh, oh, what is it, Charlie Brown? What, what's the guy that just has the pig pen? You literally start to feel this like whirlwind of smell and filth like all around you, okay? And so you're just walking around, you're like, no one look at me. Like, I just need to get home and shower, okay? But this is what repentance is like. Repentance and faith is like getting home, taking off all of that filthy clothing, and showering. It's a beautiful feeling, right? You're saying, I'm done with this. I, I'm going I'm to burn my clothes, right? I'm going to walk away from that. I'm going to walk toward cleanliness and joy and peace with God. So repentance, we shouldn't have this negative connotation. It's this, it's this beautiful, wonderful thing. If it's anxiety over here that you're clinging to, then faith means allowing the Lord to take it and trusting him with your life and with your situation. And that brings joy. So I want to finish just with this song. Um, oh, yeah, I had a picture. <laughs> All right. Did pretty well with the clicker. This is one of my favorite songs. It's an old hymn. But uh, I won't sing it because I don't want to make you guys feel awkward. But it says, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. It's this acknowledgement of, it's so wonderful to trust Jesus, and I wish I trusted him more. And that's true for every person here.
All right. Here's where I could pray and lead us out, but I also want to just give an opportunity for questions because, again, I really enjoyed that last time. I still have answers brewing for a couple of them from last week, so I'm going to get to them, especially Micah's question, but he's not here. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, does anyone have any questions on, on faith and repentance primarily, but really anything that, that comes to mind if you're thinking about something? Yes, Nathan. Thanks, sir. It's a great question. To what degree should we have sorrow over our sin given that we know we're forgiven of our sin? Yeah. And I, I think from, from what I understand, that is why this sorrow leads to repentance, but it doesn't hang around. And so I think, I, I don't think once you have confessed your sin to the Lord, you should be trying to, to stir up more sorrow for that sin. Um, I think it, it can, if you have a sin ongoing in your life that you're struggling to actually put to death, then I think it's valid to pray to the Lord to show you that sin for what it really is and to give you sorrow for it, in a sense. But once, the, once you see sin for what it is and, you've, and you grieve over it, but you don't, you don't hang out just looking at it and, and feeling sad. You, you turn, you turn away from it, you, and you pray to God that he, that he gives you strength to do that. But, I, mean, I didn't mention that explicitly, but obviously this whole thing is a gift from God. Even the ability to turn away from sin is a gift from God. But with, with that said, I, again, I, I don't see a huge emphasis, in, especially in the New Testament, on, on this. So perhaps part of the reason that the Ninevites did have this emphasis was that they did not have any certain promise from the Lord that he would forgive, right? The king says, maybe, just maybe, the Lord will turn. And perhaps they had heard that he was a merciful God, because his name was proclaimed throughout the earth, through Israel. Um, so that's, that's the best answer I can give, I think, but it's a good question. Really good question. Anything else? All right, cool. Well, let's, uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band up, and uh, let's sing it out. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth that you make the gospel available to us, and all we must do is simply accept it. And yet even, Lord, even that accepting is a gift from you because we, we must turn from our sin. You call us to forsake it and to put our trust in you. And so, Lord, I, I pray... Uh, that if there's anyone in this room who has not done this for the first time, that has not placed their trust in you, that you would lead them to that, Lord. That you convict their heart. And Lord, for, for those in the room who have done that and now are in that ongoing process of, of following you and seeking to increase their faith and seeking to increase their holiness in their life, would you show us what it, what it looks like to be repenting of sin on a daily basis and con confessing it to you? trusting you, Lord, with our lives and putting our weight down on your promises. Lord, I thank you for, for this really fantastic group and uh, I thank you for your word. We uh, now just commit this singing to you and pray that it's acceptable in your eyes, Lord. Praise in the name of Jesus.